When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to the Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. everybody. I hope that you had a great week. We're very excited to bring you an episode today. Uh, Sebastian, do you like still water or sparkling water? Oh, big fan of still water. Um, been people around my life, my mother and partner and friends have been trying to get me into sparkling water. And I mean, maybe if you add like sugar and flavor, which basically means it's a soda, I'll accept it. But other than that, I'm a big fan of water, still water. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Alex? Uh, sparkling water. I really hope that they don't find any uh, aluminum particles floating around in it. Uh, my wife oh. is concerned that I drink too much oh, sparkling water. Okay. So, what about you, Coastly? <laughs> yeah, I was just remembering how my husband often says, "Oh, I hope there isn't going to be a study that shows that." Oh, that's funny. That fizzy water is bad for your. <laughs> what's What's for you guys for the fizzy water? Is it a texture? I guess because is there anything else or what? It's like the difference is like still water is too boring. I think it's like a treat. It's like, oh, we are having something really cool and hoping <laughs> completely the same as water health benefits. Oh, interesting. Our special guest today is Kosley Simon. Kosley is the Herman B. Wells Endowed Professor and the Associate Vice Provost of Health Sciences at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Simon is a nationally known health economist who specializes in applying economic analysis to healthcare policy uh, and a great colleague all around. Uh, Kosley, thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, both of you, for having me. So we always like to uh, ask our guests to share a fun fact about themselves with the audience. Uh, what's your shareable fun fact? So this summer, one of my kids taught me how to do a flip turn in the pool. I'm wow. really excited about that. Were you a big swimmer before? This? No. So... I never learned to swim as a kid. I only mm. learned to swim recently. So being able to do a flip turn was something I would look at people and say, oh, it sounds, it looks so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's still, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing it, but I'm, I feel mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I've done so it. So this is like next to the wall so you can push yourself or just like flip anywhere in the pool type of deal? Uh, yeah, ideally against the wall, although I often end up missing the yes. length, the distance, and there I am all confused, like, which direction am I going now? There's a cost, there's a higher cost to one of those errors, though. You'd rather miss upon, you know, before the wall mm -hmm. rather than go past the wall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, when I was learning how to flip, because I used to be a swimmer, that I was always like, oh, this is going to hurt so bad. And so I err on the side of being too far away, but then I didn't get the boost, which in competitions, like that's super necessary. So it's actually, it's not as easy as it looks to learn how to flip correctly on, on a race. It's like especially. anything, right? Someone that's really good at it. You're like, that looks so simple. And right. You go to do it. Like, it's shockingly hard. <laughs> well, I'm glad you know how to flip now. <laughs> yes. Yes. On now, and checklist done. Now, now to the Olympics, Paris 2020 something. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So before we dive into today's topic, we want to hear about your work. Uh, I know you've got a ton of papers you're working on. Is there any particular paper or set of papers that you want to promote? What I spend a lot of time thinking about these days are real-time data sources for health research. So the thing I would like to talk about is exploring new data streams in, in general. And one resource, the COVID-19 Research Database, which is COVID19ResearchDatabase.org, as one of these initiatives that, you know, uh, uh, the more health economists use that I think the more benefit to all because we're kind of testing out what are these new data streams like it's basically a data for good initiative helps many organizations that have data to get connected with researchers pro bono and there is a you know easy way to register and submit a proposal there but and and at least for the next year those data contributors have provided it all for free um, mm. the, the main idea I want to you know, plug again is just that the more people engaged in learning about new data resources, we can learn more about the limitations, think creatively about ways around it, and and just overall uh, getting more real-time data into our research portfolios, because there's just, of course, lots of extra cautions needed when we deal with these kinds of data, but the public policy needs for this mm -hmm. kind of research are really huge, I think. And I, you know, I haven't messed around with the microdata, but you sent me a link to this earlier. <clears throat> so I was able to poke around a little bit at just like the broad summary statistics here. It's crazy. There's like 72 million uh, claims, something like 3 million COVID patients in here. And then they've linked it to mortality for over a uh, hundred thousand deaths as well. Um, so is, is, is this the primary sort of focus here is like getting EHR data, uh, like electronic health records, sorry for, for the non-health economists. Uh, out into the uh, world. Yeah, that's one of that's one of the aims. And then thinking about what can be done to link with you know beyond behind a firewall, link and then make the link to data available to researchers. It's all done within. Uh, you have to log into their system to use because it's a very secure setup. So there are some upfront costs. Mm. Is the idea like in terms of recommendations that? who people haven't heard about this, go to the website, check it out. And there is data to be used, like provided that you, I guess, join yes. or register and so on. Use the data and then have some recommendations to be like, hey, these are ways we can improve or link to something. Is that kind of like the... Yeah, the yeah. Or just yeah. use it for, you know, write papers with it. And then there are more people who can engage with each other on, hey, you're using this, we came up with this, this problem. You know, mm -hmm. how are you dealing with it? And currently, what type of data is there about COVID there? There's, uh, there are lots, there, there are multiple sources of electronic okay. health records data on mm -hmm. like, m you know, many millions of patients mm. in very real time ways. There's information about prescription medications. There's information from obituaries that are scraped. There are all sorts of oh, wow, data vendors um, who are making, making these resources available again for free for COVID research and at least for the next year for free. And hopefully, you know, uh, as more people use it, that mm -hmm. also increases the chance that it will continue. Mm -hmm. And we'll also put a link because I believe uh, there is an Ash Econ newsletter post that you wrote with Michael Rickerson and Alice Chen that talk a little bit about this. So if people want to read the text information about it, we'll put a link uh, down. Now let's dive a little bit into your workflow. 
Uh, I was wondering, and I actually, you know, we asked this of every guest, but I in particular wonder <laughs> what your work flow is. Uh, I joked a while ago that there just must be three of you. Um, <laughs> so we'd love to know, like, how, what is your day-to-day workflow like? And the spirit of this question is just to briefly try to think about, like, may- maybe like an ideal day, but maybe like an actual day of, like, h- how you get it all done. Uh, some people like to hear about apps or lists or whatever, but uh, feel free to sort of take this in whatever direction you're interested. And the other, the other fun fact about this question is that as we ask this, pe- this question to other people, some people were like, "Oh, you should have closely asked this question." <laughs> yeah. So it's not just us that we're interested; it's other people that are interested. And here, here, this is a big reveal. <laughs> yeah, no, I always, I, I love hearing about how other people approach their days too, and see, yeah, what tips yeah. I can learn. Mm-hmm. So why? That's my, my day starts pretty early because I think about that time as when before kids are awake, before email traffic really starts, before mm-hmm. meeting starts, like that's the prize time of mm-hmm. writing. Right? And so, uh, and my kids still are, wake up pretty early. So early, early start means very early because by 6.30 yeah. a.m. they're up awake. And oh my so, gosh. <laughs> uh, from then till about nine o'clock, it's, you know, kid time. And then nine to five is typically lots of meetings, mostly administrative, there's teaching, seminars, mm. research meetings, but um, early morning times and also weekends are times when I can kind of think of, okay, here's uh, some, some time I can block off for, for writing, mm-hmm. um, work a bit in the late evenings too, but usually it's more just oh, uh, things that don't require a lot of, you know, like clearing some brain. emails maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use my calendar a lot as my reminder system because one, one thing I've learned is that I'm not good at keeping up with lots of different apps that are different places. Like I need to have just one portal. Mm-hmm. You know, I do use a lot of apps, but I need them all to be saved in one place. Like I don't want to be logging into many places, um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if I have on my calendar some things where here's my link to the app, here's my link to the app for that, it's all, I know I don't have to keep a whole lot in mind, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so those, those things I, I rely and on. And you take your own time when you're doing these things to like, okay, in this event, I'm going to put this notes and I'm going to put this link and I'm going to put this things, or is it something that is, is there like a system or, or you just like copy and paste into the event? Yeah, I try and put into the event okay. things like here's the here's the folder link that this will relate mm-hmm. to. Here's that thing. But, you know, again, I, um, and, and similarly for, for research, I think that having one system, so it used to be Box for us now, it's Google Drive, costs change. And so it's, it's you come yeah. up with a system and say, okay, all right, I can pivot it to something else because it's the, the basic principles are the same. Mm-hmm, Got the mm-hmm. folders in a way mm-hmm. that, if somebody else is using something totally different, like a Dropbox link, you you know where to find it within your organizational system. Mm-hmm. And then, so that there too, the links are very mm-hmm. useful, like save the link where you need it to be. A, a question I like to hear others' thoughts on are, when you find yourself with an hour, how do you decide? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is the big question. We ask that a lot. And, um, and I think, you know, people have different answers. Like I... I'm in a season in which try to have little things to do when it comes to like the research part of things. So like, obviously there's the admin and all that kind of other stuff. But if it comes to like a research project, I'm like, okay, I have a, a big task that I know that I need to do. And so like, it's very easy to hold it in my head. So, if, so after, you know, let's say I have to edit a podcast episode today, but after that, I am, I know I need to work on 
running a bunch of analysis for one particular project and I know exactly where to start. Because before I used to be in a world where I was like eight projects at the same time. And, and I think, I guess I could also live with that world, but maybe I'm just like the season of after the pandemic, but I'm just trying to hold one thing in my brain and that's it. <laughs> or two. And Coastly, this is what like I find so like amazing is I'm like Sebastian where like if I'm doing six things at once, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And right. I feel like I'm, I actually am dropping the ball on one of them. I feel like six is the minimum number of projects you've been working on. Like that's your floor <laughs> since I've known you. So I can somehow you're still able to like churn out awesome work. I think, so. I think things just accumulate over the years. So I used to think, okay, this is, you know, every time we get onto more and more mm-hmm. things, we just think, okay, how, how do I keep it manageable? And, um, you know, as we, as Alex knows, we spend a lot of time thinking about workflow and reproducibility and team collaborations. And I know both of you mm-hmm. do so much you know, around mm-hmm. those those topics, but those are things we just can't can't spend enough time on. Obviously, you have a lot of meetings for different you know positions of or different hats that you're wearing. Um, do you take notes during your meetings, or or how do you if you need to like keep a track record of what happened in that meeting or like if that meeting we agreed on you do something and I do something how, do, how does that then go to your workflow in your system well that's a yeah that's a really good question because I think there's sometimes an assumption in some of the meetings like oh uh, maybe somebody was taking notes right but, <laughs> right and so best practices people say on this is take a moment to just say hey before we dig in who's taking notes because it's much more easy just to start with the light banter on a meeting mm-hmm. and then you're already into very mm-hmm. <laughs> substantive things mm-hmm. so that and then having always the our, what's what's our infrastructure for this whatever it is even if it's a service uh, not a research project mm-hmm. figuring out where where are we storing everything and where do we keep the running meeting notes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think is that's a very important part. And then do you review those like in the evening before your meeting or like, like how, like, I guess part of what I thought Sebastian, Sebastian was asking, or at least comes up in my own situation is like, I'm, I may be good at taking notes now, but just cause I took them doesn't mean like actions will be implemented from a set mm-hmm. of notes. So do you like after the meeting have like 15 minutes or something where you like allocate tasks or send emails or is that sort of like a mental storage yeah i usually am i'm not good about scheduling time in between events and zoom does that Mm. right because you put that on your calendar and then you see oh it's free right afterwards so i don't know a good way to do this i mean if if people can manage to keep the 15 minute in in between the meetings that's great but often if you do have a bit of time in between meetings you're catching up on emails right so it depends how you Mm -hmm. organize things but that's that follow through is so important because mm-hmm. you've got, you've had a meeting, you've come up with great ideas, you leave, you're on to something else. Right. Did we agree on who's doing what and what are the ways we're going to check in? Mm-hmm. So what, what I think happens in many of the meetings I'm in is that somebody who's a note taker agrees that they're going to email mm-hmm. out here with mm-hmm. the action items. And at least on reading that email, everybody remembers, all right, that's what I'm going to go do. Mm-hmm. And then we, start the next meeting with the here was our set from last time 
Right. What is your then strategy about picking what to do in those precious three hours? In the- Mostly I'm thinking about what do I have that's coming up for this day ahead mm-hmm. that I want to have ready. But, you know, I think of if there is any unstructured time that there's room to do something else on, it's, it's thinking, you know, what brings greatest joy, right? That's what we, mm. we like to think about. What is, the, what is the aspect of anything we're working on where it seems like we just can't wait to get started oh, because it's going to be so much fun. It's yeah. often not the most front burner thing, of course. Well, you guys heard it here first. It was a hidden <laughs> curriculum exclusive. Coastly does not have a time turner from Harry Potter. <laughs> Today, we want to talk about letters for tenure. So we've been having this conversation uh, about the whole process of tenure. And one thing that uh, Alex and I don't really know a lot about is what um, happens in, on the other side of tenure and specifically about the letters recommendations. And this is something that um, some of our listeners have been wanting to hear as well. Uh, so these are questions about, you know, letters recommendation for tenure, how are they different from other ones, you know, uh, what should those be going up for tenure do to make the letter writer's job easier, et cetera. So we'll dive into that conversation today. You get a letter writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With experience from uh, Cozily. So let, let's start at the beginning, right? Uh, how is this different than other letters of recommendation? So we write, yeah, a lot of letters of recommendation. I remember a colleague telling me that, you know, you will spend 50% of your time on aspects that are evaluation. Mm. Mm. And and I never thought about it that way early on, but it it, it really does uh, become that you're going to be writing lots of things you're weighing in on. So for a recommendation letter, it's a typical kind of re- recommendation you might be writing for an an award or for a, a student for a particular you no know, position somewhere. Much shorter, of course. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these tenure letters, the way they're different, is much more in depth, much more consequential. How does it compare in length to, let's say, a letter of recommendation for a job market candidate? Is it sort of similar in scope? Similar in scope. There's a lot more, of course, to, to get into. And, and let me say something about the length. You don't want to make it really long because the people reading it only have a certain amount of time to get the basic message. Mm. So I think there's a focus on making the front end and the end of the letter really, really accessible while going into details in the middle, but still also not making it, you know, a 10 page letter. Got to keep it pretty manageable. And when you say accessible and like just get to the point in those kind of like front end points, is it like, uh, my name is X and, and and I I do recommend this person for tenure or isn't that's not the type of clear language that that they're looking for or that is accessible. I think you do want to make it very clear at the okay. start. You first will say okay. something <laughs> very clear like that because otherwise some if that is what you believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise a committee reading this letter might think I don't know what they're saying. Oh, I see. Between the lines and they're not coming out outright Clear. and saying I support. So yes, if one does support, that is written very mm-hmm. clearly at mm-hmm. the start. Mm-hmm. And and also related to that, I think one of the difference when I think about the job market versus uh, a tenure case is that in the job market, you know, I've seen letters being written like, oh, this person is great if they land in 
places ranges X to X versus I guess in the tenure, like I think this person is great for getting tenure in this particular institution. So it becomes, I guess, a much more specific recommendation in that way. Yes, yes. That's interesting. And something very important to keep in mind is that the letter writing process is very different from writing referee comments. Mm. So I, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I know what I get from referee comments when I was mm-hmm. coming up for tenure. Is mm-hmm. that the kind of thing mm. about my work that mm-hmm. these letter writers are mm-hmm. going to say to my department chair? Mm-hmm. People approach tenure letter writing very differently. You, you had said that, you know, it's much more positive. Yes. Uh, do you think that's because people, like I've been told this about student letters of recommendation, like basically do not like suggest to a student to find another letter writer if you're going to write a negative letter. Um, do you think it's sort of some selection on, on that on that front? It could be that too. But remember, in a when writing a referee comment, it's about uh, having an opportunity right there to change something. Thankfully, there are a lot of referees who write very positive mm-hmm. ways of encouraging change as well. But in a tenure letter, you are evaluating rather than saying, hey, they should have done this and Mm -hmm. trying to change Mm -hmm. the path of any particular research paper. So taking back um, to a little bit, maybe that process. So you get an email from an institution or from maybe an associate dean or a committee, I guess, and saying, hey, uh, we're looking for letters uh, for this particular person or for this particular position. And um, at that point, uh, obviously you can accept or decline my my sense, and I, I don't know, this is why I asked the question, is that uh, I guess usually people maybe accept, but they decline if they don't have time or if they don't know the person. And so if if you're if you're thinking about declining, do you want to say the reason or you want to say like, oh, no, sorry, thank you type of deal, and then you decline? First of all, declining is taken as, a, is, is not a positive signal okay. for the That's tenure important. committee because think about it this way. If, if, a tenure committee, the dean's office sends out, you know, 12 letters and mm-hmm. only three people accepted their invitation. Mm-hmm. It's going to be written in the record mm-hmm. because there will be some mention of how many people were contacted and how many people agreed. Wow. And their takeaway from this was your work m- might not have been having great impact if only right. this many people agreed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but so on think the very other carefully hand, about declining then, because that's think a very carefully about it. But of course, people aren't going to be able to accept all the tenure letter requests that come their way. Some people are asked many, many times, mm-hmm. and would have to think about whether that person is in their field, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, it is good when you, if if you have to decline, to give some reason like mm-hmm. that, because then if the faculty in the department in examining the tenure case ask, oh, okay, we see this many people declined. If the the chair or the dean is able to say, yes, but they gave, you know, Mm -hmm. what seemed like very reasonable reasonable reasons. reasons. Mm -hmm. We just didn't pick based on the best fit. So Mm -hmm. that also speaks to the importance of developing the list Mm -hmm. in a way that minimizes the chance people will decline on basis of this work is outside of my area. And do they tell you how long you have the time to write the letter? Yes, there okay. is a please submit by date. 
And usually is, is it a month? Is it weeks? It's pretty long as okay. uh, because you might get people whose packets are put together in the spring and the letters of invitation go mm -hmm. out. And mm -hmm. then you're told, you know, we need the letter by mid to late summer because when mm -hmm. the semester starts is when the PNT committee will meet. Gotcha. Great. Okay. So now let's say you accepted to write this letter. Uh, what is the process that usually people do in, in a, a tag question of this? It's like, what can we, the candidates do to make that process a lot easier for the letter writers to write their letters? Yes. A great thing to, to, to think ahead about is that a good statement, a clear CV and, and a good website, especially if the mm. school doesn't send out a whole lot of material other than a set of papers in the CV and maybe mm -hmm. the statement might be short, but um, look for the, the statement to be very clear about what area you define as being your research portfolio and the way you describe how you have built up your expertise in that area. Mm -hmm including information on the journals you have published in, in ways that explain to the general academic audience the standing of those journals is, is really key because we are, the tenure letter writers are writing for multiple audiences. So at mm -hmm. first, when I started doing these letters, I thought, well, the senior health economists in the department of the candidate they already know all these things. What more do I have mm -hmm. to add? Right. Mm -hmm. But remember, you're writing that letter for other people in the department who are outside of the field, for other people in the school that are outside of the department, mm -hmm. and for people on the campus outside of the school. Right. Right. So there's a very general audience to whom you are explaining the importance of this field. Mm -hmm. When you said like having a very clear statement and website and things helps the letter writer, is it that then the letter writer can see, oh, here's like a good way to explain the stature of that journal. And then they try to like echo that language. Like what are the features of those things that you said good that make it easier for the letter so writer? Hopefully everything in the packet is all you ever need to consult. There's okay. the, the, the focus really is the statement and the CV. I just mentioned that I, I, there have been some times when I'm surprised that the department sends only very little and then, you know, but, but really think about it as the focus is the statement and the CV. Some places might just ask you purely on what we send you, these three articles mm, or okay. so. Right. Interesting. Good. And on the CV, that is the first things you want to see, or the most obvious things you want to see is research, the, the research profile, publications, working papers. And is there anything else that you would consider like their importance or like super valuable to see really easily? It's really the uh, list of papers okay. and right. having links to them. Again, okay. you should probably need no nothing other than the packet, right? Because that's what you're meant to look at. So the statement, the clearest information you can put on the statement and mm -hmm. think about writing it for this broader audience as well as for the specialists. So you have mm -hmm. this mix of being able to explain generally and then very mm -hmm. detailed in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
This is really helpful. And I think what's kind of cool about this conversation is we're talking a little bit from the perspective of the candidate and a little bit from the perspective of the letter writer. Um, so sorry if I'm blending these two things here, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the same school as Coastly. We don't have departments. We have like lots of, of very broad faculty with lots of different research interests. So in our personal statements, or at least one in mine and the ones that I, I sort of saw from other candidates, uh, we're very explicit with like impact factor and rankings and things like that in the personal statement to make it clear to, to mm. faculty members from like these other disciplines, like the, the relative uh, positioning of these journals. Is that something a letter writer should try to echo? Or is that something that like, typically you're like, ah, oh, it's in the personal statement. I don't need to say that again. I can just say a sentence like, these are really good journals for this person's field. They should get tenure. Mm -hmm. The more you can say that echoes what's in the statement, but remember that you're, you're writing your letter with evidence. So it's not just saying, oh, that statement was fantastic. You're writing, here are the reasons I believe this person's record is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're going to inform yourself by reading the statement, their papers, and your knowledge of the field, standing of the journals. But it's, it's very important to remember that it's, uh, it's not that the statement will be seen as, oh, you just refer to the statement saying, for the reasons mentioned in the statement, mm -hmm. you really want to say it in your own ways of what about the statement did you find the most convincing as a signal of future productivity and standing in the field. How, how do you as a tenure or how do tenure letter writers adjust things by institution? Obviously, different institutions may have different standards for promotion and tenure, and, and we all have our guidelines that our institutions give us for promotion and tenure of like, here's how much research I want you to do in service and so on. So is, is that like homework that the letter writer needs to do, or is it more of like this general uh, zeitgeist knowledge that everyone has, I guess, and then yeah. you kind of just apply it? Well, the, the letter writer is going to be given often some link or a document that says, here are our okay. tenure standards. Mm. But it's not that there's going to be something unique to one university versus another that I should, you know, okay. really go and look at it. So every... once you read them one, you read them all type of deal. In some ways, but you do want to customize it to the language of that particular university. So you might say something like, I've read through the candidate statement, the, the materials provided, mm -hmm. including your department's PNT guidelines. Mm -hmm. And on the basis of, and usually it'll be said in there, research and teaching and service or mm -hmm. some whatever ways in which the tenure standards are written, you want to incorporate that into your letter from that school's document, knowing that it won't be vastly different across universities mm. Mm. at certain tiers or certain mm -hmm. ways of thinking about it. There might be some places that say, well, while uh, to give you some background, our faculty typically teach an X course load or something, right? So that helps you assess, okay, I'm not going to hold this person to a standard of places that have a much lower teaching load. You also are going to, and I'll talk about this more, the, the way we 
are asked to bring comparables into discussion. That's a mm -hmm. part I, I didn't really know a lot about until I started writing letters or being on PNT committees mm -hmm. that they, they say you're requested in your letter to address how the candidate compares to mm. other people oh, in similar situations in similar schools. Hmm. And like what kind of answer are they looking for? Is it they're looking for like names or they're looking for what? Yeah, so they this is a, an undervalued aspect of the tenure process is that somebody who is from the outside says, I don't really know how to judge right. a journal. You might tell me that it is highly ranked in a particular field, but I don't really need know how to judge how many of those are reasonable mm -hmm. for somebody coming up for tenure. So they look for evidence of how the junior candidates in their department or in their school mm -hmm. or their university compare to similar candidates in other universities. And so a way to do some compare, uh, provide some evidence of this is to think what's a university that's similarly ranked or a department that's similarly ranked or a mm -hmm. you know, type of department. And then who has come up for tenure recently that you might go to that school's website and look mm -hmm. at and judge, okay. okay, this person seems to have received tenure recently. And then do some comparison of, oh, this person's record is fairly similar to mm -hmm. people who've recently come up in these schools. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking very general terms. For example, okay. they had three A journal publications. And again, what an A journal means varies, but you can talk about it right. as top field or general interest and engage that number. I see. And is that how then you also says, as we were talking about uh, uh, research quantity and quality mix that each institution has, you kind of look at that institution's like past in your cases and say like, okay, this is kind of like the mix. Is that how we, we figure it out or, or is there another thing that one needs to do there? Yeah, that's also another way is that you might in your letter talk about people who have come up for tenure specifically in that department that you're now writing that letter for and say, in my view, this mm -hmm. candidate is equal, right. if not better, whatever, to... Right somebody who, who they will know. Yeah. And, and I guess those are the things that you said as if, if you're clear about that, that's better because then there's no like, oh, this could be read as. Yes. Oh. Yes. So another part, maybe from the PNT side that might be useful for thinking about as I think I'm going into my 12th year of being a oh my PNT committee is that the PNT committee will have often a letter that's summarizing what was in the letters. Oh, so in that, there's a section where in the middle of that letter, that report, it'll say something like experts consulted from across many fields, whatever, unanimously agree mm. that candidate X is deserving of promotion mm. and tenure. Mm. For mm. example, and then you might say, Professor X at Y says, and you quote a line that most explains very clearly, gotcha. I fully support wow. this person. And then maybe another sentence that says, they have been the best thing since sliced bread. Right, right, right. So those and sentences that, are so key because that's really the evidence that puts into that mini report. Yes, and answer. so that report then goes forward with all these letters as appendices. But if if all it is is... You're now at the campus level where they're mm -hmm. looking at hundreds of these files. Mm 
-hmm. when somebody says, all right, I see this is a pretty clear cut case because look, I don't need to go and read the five page, three page, whatever documents, I can see it right there. This is really like illuminating to what the overall process is like. And I realized we never sort of talked about that at the very beginning. Could you just describe overall, like you just mentioned where it is in that promotion and tenure document, but where do letter writers fit in in the tenure process? There will be this big, big binder, multiple binders that are traveling as part of the tenure dossier, of course. And into that, when you create it in the spring, let's say, There is a section that's kept blank. Here will go the letters that come in, right? So as the 10-year letters come in, they're filed there. Then the PNT committee has a assignment of, okay, we're taking up this case. We are going to create the draft report and discuss or whichever order that comes in. And in there will be the report of the PNT committee. Into that will go lots of, we discussed this person's teaching, we discussed this person's service and all that. And in the part of research, there will be other things about Mm -hmm. documenting this person produced this many papers, this process, these grants. And then there will be this section about, let's say a page long, that is X outside letter writers were consulted, representing areas as as diverse as this department Mm. to this department. And they said this, and then it goes next to that letter, that report might then be shared with the rest of the department or the school as they make their, there's a discussion and a vote. And and then to what extent do you think the, the relative weight that the collective opinion of these letter writers matters Mm. at different, first of all, in general, and then at at different types of institutions? It, It is extremely influential. It is perhaps the most influential part of a tenure case. Okay. Now you might think going into it, there are some cases where it's not going to be that surprising because many people within the department are able to evaluate and have done third year reviews. And they know, you know, for example, if Mm -hmm. it's an economics department, there isn't, everybody is pretty informed about where Mm -hmm. the journals are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're in a school setting like ours, Alex, there's more heterogeneity in how informed people might be. But along the way, you've done things, for example, bringing in outside speakers or network, you know, that people have a good sense of how you are faring in the field. So it's not a surprise that, oh, we are we, we have no idea going into it what these letters will look like. There's a good mm-hmm. sense of this person's probably going to get really, you know, uh, letters that confirm what we believe. But the ability to say it's on this basis, especially to higher levels of campus or university systems, if you have a case that you believe in your department, this person really is doing great, but the letters don't support that, Mm. there's a high degree of risk along the way. Mm. Plus, there are many people, I think, within a department who's, when, when the case is being discussed, being able to point to what the external experts have said is going to influence the way they consider the case. You know, that's surprising to hear because I would have thought that by the fact that it's constructing or having an idea who your potential letter writers is and and selecting some of them, I guess institution selects all of them, that there's like some positive self-selection. But I guess you're right in that it's still not 100% true. It's, it's It's you're playing with uncertainty, right? So, yeah. 
and about the degree too. Yeah. Half of the letter writers generally are picked by the deans or right. the the school, and not uh, ones you would have perfect information, mm-hmm. information on. And also because many people, even if they are very supportive of the candidate, know that they have to write things that are very objective, or their credibility mm. will be called into question. Right. So there may be oh, uh, words may not be as informative as being Mm -hmm. able to put the evidence behind it because Mm -hmm. this person's record is very comparable to these many cases Mm -hmm. that have already been Mm -hmm. recently promoted at comparable institutions. Great. One one thing that um, this relates to, sorry, Alex, really quickly, is that in the letters, do you just want to then talk about research or want to talk about other stuff like teaching or, uh, you know, public goods, et cetera? Good question. Sometimes you'll be told specifically only comment on research, but even then somebody might put in something like, I know our requ- the request is only mm. to comment on research, but, lem- but, but I have seen the impact of this person's work in settings such as conferences, uh, uh, this relates also to another part of the t- tenure letter, which is what's the context in which you know the candidate? What's the context in which you write the perspective of? So the mm. first part is uh, we're very upfront in being asked sometimes, do you know this candidate? In what context? Is this an arm's length letter? So you might say, here's how I know this ca- candidate. I, mm. I only know this candidate through the packet or I have known mm. the candidate as being part of a field, I've seen their right. work presented, I've read their papers or, or so on. And then you might say, and either I have never spoken with the candidate or yes, we have spoken in the context of seminars right. and I consider this an arm's length report. Mm-hmm. So that also gives the room for saying in the context of having seen this person's work professionally, I also know this person's very generous to the field uh, provides great seminar comments. Have been mm-hmm. impressed with the insights they bring. Or mm-hmm. Other things, yeah, makes sense. Often are added in. And one more question: To what is there any recommendations or tips about how to pick uh, letter writers? So this is from the candidate perspective. I think that this is part of professional development that happens in getting ready for your your tenure review. Is thinking about a potential letter writer list always Mm -hmm. having this in mind that you are going to be asked on a certain day by your dean's office to submit a set of letters. Now, there will be also a set that the department picks. So Mm -hmm. you're asked your your list thinking in mind, who do you think best may know your work and be able to put it in context? Mm -hmm. So one of the things you'd be thinking about, of course, is who works in the area I'm mostly closely associated with? And who is in a position to be able to give a perspective that the audiences to whom my tenure packet Mm -hmm. goes, my colleagues, my dean's Mm -hmm. office outside the school and so on, will say, oh, yeah, they they have a perspective on this. So typically, it tends to be people who are at full professor levels, Mm -hmm. tends to be people who are in universities that are at 
the same rank or above. And mm -hmm. I mean more the university itself. Sometimes you may make the case why uh, somebody in a department that's highly ranked, even though the university itself is not at the, mm -hmm. uh, the same level of the university you might be at at that point. Mm -hmm. So those things are taken into account. The other way is just to think, who knows of your work? So mm -hmm. when they are asked about the uh, the, the packet, their answer isn't, well, based on these papers, although I've never heard of this person's work <laughs> outside, you might want to know, you know who, who works closely in the area and, and knows, cites your work, has invited you to present in seminars, has mm -hmm. um, maybe as a journal editor handled a paper mm -hmm. or any other way you think they, they do know about my work specifically. Yeah. And that's super important. I think that the knowing that it, I didn't know it was a, so it has to be a full professor and knowing that it's like institutions rank, quote unquote, your level or higher, that actually sometimes limits the amount of people that you all like know in the profession. And that I did not realize that. It yeah, and that's my sense. Typically, that is. Now, again, there may be exceptions. But yeah, no, it's generally. All right, so we learned a lot of things today. I think shocker number one, or I guess it's less of a shocker now for me, but it may be if you're new in academia, is that at some point, sort of as you become full professor, you know, 50% of your time is going to be evaluative. And I think mm. she meant that, you know, Kosley meant that in a broad sense, like referee reports and letters of recommendations for students, but also a portion of that is uh, writing letters for tenure. Uh, they tend to be longer, maybe similar to the length of those going uh, on the job market, but with a really clear recommendation about whether someone should receive tenure. Uh, very nice. Um, you know, unlike referee report comments where it's sort of an opportunity to change something right then and there, it's, there's not really an opportunity to change here. Uh, we learned a lot about the process, about how does it work, what goes into the letter. Um, I, I think uh, some of that stuff I won't try to summarize here because Coastly, it was like so much information about what goes in there. But if you're a person going up for tenure, you can make uh, your letter writer's life a little bit easier by having a very clear personal statement, a clear CV, and a clear website where that information can, can be accessed. Um, see, another thing that uh, I think we we talked about was how do you pick a set of letter writers or, or who's, a, mm -hmm. who's a good set? And I think it was pretty helpful just to have this, you know, it differs across institutions, but Coastly uh, mentioned, you know, it's typically full professors uh, at peer institutions are better at arm's length. So, uh, you know, given this uh, knowledge, who you, um, you know, editors have interacted with you, either as a, you know, you're doing a referee report for them, or they handled one of your papers, people you've invited for seminars, people you've met at conferences, um, you know, that, that could be, as you said, Sebastian, sort of people a, that handle your papers too. Right? Yeah. Handled your papers. Yeah. That, that could be a smaller set of people than maybe you think when you're like, well, there's like, you know, whatever, 10,000 economists. <laughs> and then the last thing that we talked about before the recording started, right. is just, it's really important to know how this process works for your own institution. So be sure to talk with your mentor, with people that went up for tenure, people on the promotion and tenure committee uh, at your own institution. So you can learn, you know, what's important for your institutions, like Coastly mentioned, like we're both at O'Neill School of Public Environmental Affairs. It's a broad faculty. Letter writers are very, very important there. Uh, you know, I've never been on the PNT committee, but uh, people on the PNT committee repeatedly stressed that to me throughout the process. So it was not like a surprise when I was filling out my packet that they were like, "Okay, take this part really seriously because this is like make or break." Mm -hmm. Every week, we like to ask our guests for our recommendation of the week. This can be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, 
quoted a book. Uh, Kuzli, what is your recommendation of the week? So getting ready for class, I was reminded of how much I like Gapminder as the website that has these Gapminder oh. tools. It's a place where you get to see countries over time, how their health outcomes related to their inputs like GDP. So it's, you know, there are oh. probably lots of other cool tools like this, but it's a good exercise for getting students to discuss in groups early in the semester. What do they think are good inputs and outputs mm. in, in health production? Cool. I don't think I know so about it. the side. Alex, what is your recommendation of the week? I've been using Obsidian recently a lot, which oh. is like a, a note taking thing. Yeah. And it's not like terribly fancy. It's just like a bunch of text documents on your computer and a way of organizing them. But my recommendation is if this is something that you find interesting, pay the money because it's free. So, but if you pay money, you can have like mobile sync. It mm. is fantastic. I've been typing basically LaTeX on my iPad. With wow. Like, no lag. It just like perfectly works. It's been, uh, it's, it's not like a perfect way to write all your papers. Cause like importing tables and figures like that's not going to work, right. but man, it's really reduced the cost of me having just all my notes in one spot from meetings and, and all things sort of academia. That's awesome. Uh, my recommendation of the week is something really simple. So if you go to any accessibility of Android or iOS, you can create a shortcut where you press the wake button three times, one, two, three, and it goes to color to black and white. And I use that a lot. What, for what reason? <laughs> for what reasons? Great. So when I'm working and I don't want to get distracted by my phone, if I change the color and I pick up my phone, it's kind of like a brain reminder of like, oh yeah, you're not supposed to be in your phone. It's black and white. And you know, it works 60% of the time, but I'll take those marginal effects on productivity to get away from my phone. 60% of the time, it works 100% of the time. <laughs> is there a button to also make it go completely blank yeah, and no matter the, what you do? The off button. <laughs> I think there are some after that. I'm not that nuclear, but maybe I should. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been like, sometimes I just like find myself on Twitter and I'm like, why is this? And I'm like, oh, right, because I'm not supposed to be on here. And I'm like, okay, back to work. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. These are great insights. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? The O'Neill School website. Okay. <laughs> there you go. We'll put that link on the show notes. Great. That's all that we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Casilli. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.